This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO Zach Vasser, principal second violin and artistic administrator Merwin Sue, and the TSO's marketing director Felicia Canny. Well, we are all about Beethoven today and about Brahms. We are talking about a, a program that's coming up this weekend, Saturday and Friday, January 12th and 13th. It's at 8 o'clock at the Toledo Museum of Art Paris Style. We're going to hear the Beethoven Piano Concerto Number no. 5, the Emperor Concerto. And that stars the pianist Stuart Goodyear, who's been here a couple of times before. In fact, he's going to be calling in any minute, hopefully, fingers crossed. We're waiting for him to call in. We're going to chat about that. Also on the program, the Symphony Number no. 2 in D major by Johannes Brahms. You can find more information at the uh, website, toledosymphony.com, or call up the box office, 419-246-8000. At the podium will be Giordano Bellincampi, very popular uh, conductor here in Toledo. And uh, so let's start off uh, just by taking the temperature, first of all, because this is kind of a battle of the bees going on in this uh, program. I, I just want to sample each of you. If it, we were having a celebrity smackdown, right, between Beethoven and Brahms, who would win? Merwin? Well, I don't think Beethoven would be able to hear Brahms coming. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good one. So if there was a smackdown, I think I would I would go with Brahms in the cage match. But if he could see Brahms, so say Brahms is coming toward him and he was looking up, who would win? Well, that's an entirely different question. <laughs> the, 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 that's a, that takes us into a hypothetical I'm just not comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> Felicia, you want to weigh in on the topic? Oh, definitely Brahms. <laughs> definitely oh. Brahms. Okay, I'll Zach. I'll leave it at that. I'm going to go for Beethoven. As much as I love Brahms, I think the old man would have taken him down in a cage match. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, well yeah, they're they're you're you're talking literal cage, cage match. match. Yeah. I mean, it, just imagine old Beethoven, grumpy, syphilitic, he probably would have still beaten up Brahms. I have to say I'm I'm going to go for for Brahms not only for the uh sake of of <laughs> bringing us decision. to a tie <laughs> <laughs> but also for the fact that you know Brahms was he was a, a, a rather slight man when he was young but but he grew shall we say as he got older and, <laughs> he gained and, in stature yes <laughs> he gained in stature and, and and I think that if it were the two of them you know I think that Brahms could could probably could I think probably it ended him. up 3 to 1 I think Zach is the only dissenter Wait, yeah. Merwin, are you switching no, I said that you oh, said Beethoven Brahms? wouldn't be able to hear Brahms oh, okay. coming, so gotcha. oh, Brahms okay. would win. Okay, well, then maybe I should say Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> Don't flip-flop. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point is that, you know, they're both uh, they're both equally um, amazing in their own right. But let's, let's... Pugilistic, not being <laughs> the right that comes to mind. <laughs> well... <laughs> We have all kinds of programming possibilities coming up here. Yeah, the whole cage match do, series. We wanted to do a New Year's Viennese masterpieces concert. This is never intended to uh, elicit any visions of cage matches. Yeah. I, now I really wish that we had brought um, uh, Robert uh, Clemens, Bob Clemens, in to do <laughs> Brahms for us because we've heard his Beethoven. So they might sound an awful lot alike. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Save that for a future episode. <laughs> Well, so uh, well, on the new year we do have what the old year and then the the baby for the new year a baby new match, year right? yeah do you guys know the cartoon yeah, yeah no, I, are I, you I'm talking not about in the cold here that's like a Rudolph cartoon right 
isn't it? Or I something, so. or the baby, yeah, baby new year. Yeah, an old man from. Yeah. Old man time. <laughs> old, old man yesteryear. He kind of looks like Brahms. <laughs> yes. So you're Very saying much. Beethoven is baby new year and Brahms is old man yesteryear? No, no, I think we'd have to flip flop. You'd flip flop. Yeah. Do it the other way? Yeah. Yeah. Baby Brahms versus old man Beethoven? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That That's sort of how sense. it was. I mean, there's this, if we're going to talk about Brahms, there's this, uh, uh, you know, legendary story. It's become part of uh, classical music uh, lore that Brahms was under the shadow of Beethoven. You know, he wrote his Ninth Symphony, Beethoven did, and then Brahms took like 50, 60, 80 years to write his first symphony <laughs> because he was so afraid of being compared to uh, Beethoven. But his second symphony came along pretty quickly, and, it's, and it's not one that we hear all that often. But what was the reasoning behind pairing this Brahms with this particular very popular Beethoven concerto? Well, I think that when you're comparing the Brahms symphonies, the first symphony and the second symphony, um, the first symphony opens with this incredible statement, like, I, I am ready, I am here, these powerful timpani strokes. Whereas the second Brahms symphony starts almost in meteor like you're... You have just the descending semitone, you know, um, motive, and then you're off, you're 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 off on the stream of the melody, so to speak. And it feels very comfortably Brahms, somebody who is very mm. much comfortable in their own skin. And in a way, you're taking two um, two compositions of composers who are very much in comfortable in their own skin at this point you know beethoven's emperor concerto you're talking about somebody um beethoven very much you know kind of fully established in his middle period and i think you could you could say a similar sort of thing for brahms mm -hmm. um and even though there's this the mythology in a way that we talked about that forever links the two and i think is legitimate um but in these two compositions you see brahms maybe separating himself a little bit from beethoven's ghost I would agree with everything you just said, because for me, the, the handshake is Brahms' first symphony, and that's quotations of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. By the time Brahms gets to Symphony Number no. 2, he's he's flying with his own wings, and he's he's writing his own music, which frankly sounds a lot more like the chamber music uh, that came before it, the Brahms' first symphony. Um, for me, it's just an impossibly sunny symphony as well, and, and one that I feel like is overlooked. When you wrote only four symphonies... You know, you can't say that any of Brahms' symphonies are overlooked, but, um, you know, the first is certainly famous. You'd probably argue as to whether three or four is the next most famous. And then two just ends up being uh, this, like, fourth-place finisher out of four. But it's a fantastic symphony. Every time I listen to it, I've seen it with some of the great orchestras around, I'm just blown away by how outstanding it is. And by the end of the fourth movement, I'm ready just to fly out of my seat and say, this is the best Brahms symphony. Yeah. What, what do you think, Felicia? Are you a, a Brahms fan? I want to point out that Felicia has in front of her the scores to <laughs> the complete symphonies by Johannes Brahms. Really? She does. I I, pers I don't own this. This is my husband. But I did uh, photocopy some of the the first pages of the second symphony and i have it plastered on my wall in the office <laughs> why is that uh well the this symphony was first introduced to me when i was in uh, college at bgsu mm -hmm. and uh at that time um i was one of not many oboe students at the 
the school. So I played in almost all of the ensembles. And uh, so, you know, one rehearsal to the, to the next, not very different. But one semester in particular, uh, my future husband auditioned, made it into the Philharmonia, and which was great at that time because it was packed full of grad students. So we were very proud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, when you're kind of, when you meet someone for the first time and you're, you're thinking that, oh, you know, he might be interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> you have like this heightened sense of awareness. And what was his instrument? Trombone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Trombone and oboe. Yeah, we could play Bach conventions or yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so at so while we were getting to know one another, we were also diving deeper into uh, Brahms second mm-hmm. in rehearsal, and it just kind of became like the soundtrack. For wow! So when people say romance. it's our song, you're like this forty minute symphony. It's our song. <laughs> oh, yes. It's our. We should symphony. have worked that into the wedding somehow. Don. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long procession. <laughs> you have we'll to walk very crawl. slowly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, next time I play it on the air, I'll dedicate it to uh, you two. Aww. Aww. So sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great story. Yeah. Well, stepping away from my personal connection to it, I just think it's so remarkable that it took Brahms over 20 years to write the first symphony and yeah. then like a summer vacation <laughs> to write the second one. And... Yeah. um I mean, Merwin and Zach, you kind of touched upon that already, but it's, I, I find, um, human motivations very interesting. And for Brahms, um, the fact that he felt like he couldn't live up to Beethoven and he was afraid of failing, um, trying to live up to this expectation of writing this phenomenal symphony, I, I think is very interesting. And then yeah. only after, he received praise for his first symphony. Was he able to, you know, let everything just flow and churn out the second one in no time at all? Well, we're going to hear uh, in, in a little bit here. Uh, Rachel Zeithamel and you, Merwin, are going to perform for us in the mm-hmm. studio. Something we have not done since the very first uh, episode of the podcast when we had Damon Coleman come in. Mm-hmm. You guys are going to do that FAE Sonata. It's an interesting story. Sure behind that but uh, did you have something you wanted to say felicia i feel like i cut you off there oh uh, when merwin kind of talked about the the beautiful melodies from brahms second um my favorite of all is the the first movement the very beginning of it how the 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 three notes kind of draw you into this almost lullaby feel (laughs) and then um, brahms was good at writing those (laughs) i know (laughs) you might have had a few (laughs) um and then it it just it really draws the listener in uh, to to the next uh, really sweet melody and right around measure one hundred from the score right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, it's it's the gorgeous melody mm-hmm. melody that I have up on my wall and it's like a swirling. Um, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, do, do you know the animated movie Anastasia? I can't say well. I do. There's this one scene that I always imagine, and she's in the ballroom dreaming of. The, the people that she knew, people in her mind, and it's like swirling around mm-hmm. her. And that's, that's, that's the music that's happening right around yeah. um, oh, wow. that, that section of the first movement that I, it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And now I think everyone's going to love it. That's not the movie that you wanted for Christmas that your sister got, right? No, or no, Cinderella. Cinderella. <laughs> They're very, very similar. <laughs> one knows her family, one has forgotten. <laughs> Well, I remember from my music history days, you know, when we talked about Brahms, the the whole big 
thing, the thing that drew everybody's attention was this like love triangle between Brahms and, and Schumann. Robert Schumann and – well, not between Brahms and Robert Schumann, but Brahms <laughs> and Clara Schumann and, of course, her husband Robert uh, involved as Brahms' mentor. But I never felt it was clear to me what really was going on there. Does anybody want to weigh in on all of that? Because it seems like, you know, did they, didn't they? Maybe in a year. Maybe you want to weigh in on this in a year. We might have yeah. a program devoted exactly to that topic. Perhaps, really? As might, we think might. about this. Might. Really? What's it about? <laughs> <laughs> I will say, um, in, in talking about Brahms symphonies, the, my understanding is that the first piano concerto started off as a symphony, and he was dedicating it to Clara Schumann. Uh, but then somehow the the nervousness uh, overwhelmed him, so he made it uh, a piano concerto instead of a symphony. That's why it starts out so symphonic, and yeah. I think it's five minutes before the piano hits a single key. Yeah. Okay. Is that your answer? Final That's, answer. I'm I'm uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm skipping the table. topic. Yeah. Well, yeah. I will I will say that Brahms a lot. Some of the many things that Brahms is known for is his ability to kind of hide coded messages in his right. music um the fae sonata that you mentioned is actually something which um which references that but not so much the d major symphony so yeah. in a way i think while i i think it's your your nose for his story is perfectly <laughs> appropriate i think we will we okay. i can maybe divert it a little bit to the fae sonata that's that we're about to play you um, might have missed a career in politics that was some <laughs> wonderful work there well done well it's done. just yeah. natural canadianness <laughs> okay to be continued <laughs> Quota, check. Um, but, to be continued as they say roll the tape we had you guys tape the fae sonata for us before sure. we started uh doing the podcast so let's just go ahead with that and then maybe when we come back uh We'll get Stuart Goodyear on the phone. Maybe, maybe not. Just depends on if we can get him to call in or not. Uh, Merwin, can you introduce that sonata for us? Because this is not just by Brahms, right? Sure. We're actually just playing the single movement that was written by Brahms, but this was a collaborative effort um, that also included Schumann as a birthday gift for Josef Joachim, um, the, the famous violinist. Mm -hmm. And um, Joachim had a motto, free but lonely, um, and translated into the German and using the first letters of each of those words, you created a motive that was used in every one of these movements. That's what the FAE is. That's what the yeah. FAE is. And so um, Brahms um, created the scherzo for this. And one of the reasons is a really appropriate choice to play for something like this is you really hear the Beethovenian aspect of Brahms in this. Um, Beethoven's ghost is very strong, and including, I think, a very conscious reference to the three shorts and a long rhythm that begins the fifth symphony. Okay. Well, sit back and relax. We have violinist Merwin Sue and Rachel Zeithamel performing at the piano, music of Johannes Brahms, here on Toledo Symphony Lab. Thank you. 
music of Johannes Brahms, we heard a movement from the FAE Sonata for Violin and Piano, Merwin Sue, who is uh, from Toledo Symphony, along with Rachel Zeithamel at the piano, also from Toledo Symphony. We asked Rachel to come in today, but we couldn't find a pair of headphones for her, so <laughs> she skipped out on us. That's okay. She bailed. <laughs> yeah, she'll be, you know, she'll be here in future episodes, and we had her talking about the education episode a, a few weeks back. But we haven't heard from Stuart Goodyear. I don't know. He, he's MIA, so he, he, maybe he wasn't able to call us this morning. But let's talk about Beethoven. Since we don't have Stuart here, we can talk about the Emperor Concerto. Mm-hmm. And who, who wants to start with that? Well, we got to start with Zach because you're the one that voted for Beethoven at the I, I guess I have to go defend Beethoven. I never yeah. thought you had to do this. You know, Celebrity Smackdown. At <laughs> Symphony Hall in Boston, they had all of these um, nameplates that were supposed to be filled with names of great composers. 
And the one thing that everybody could could agree on is that Beethoven should be on the most prominent one directly above the middle of the stage. But yeah. what they couldn't agree on was anyone else. So <laughs> I think that they're still empty to this day, which is kind of a neat design flaw for wow. the perfect sound of Symphony Hall. I think we should point out that when we're talking about defending Beethoven, we're not talking about defending Beethoven, the composer. We're talking about defending Beethoven the pugilist, the fighter in a cage match. Oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Here's I want to get Felicia's uh, take on this because you're a marketing director. What what if the TSO started like a whole line of action figures and, and you did, you know, Beethoven action figure or you did you could commission these and, and, and sell heads. them and market them. Maybe not for this Christmas, but for next Christmas, or you know, even better yet, rock'em sock'em robots. Well, right? I like how you say this as if we already haven't done it. <laughs> Have you done it? <laughs> no, Do you, are there Beethoven action figures out there? Uh, we did just commission a set of greeting cards for the Toledo Symphony, and it's great because we worked with this wonderful uh, local artist named Ed Kahn, and he would listen to the music of each of the composers that he was drawing and uh, put together a Spotify playlist for each of them, and then that inspired the art that he created. And what he has for Beethoven is this crazy-haired caricature with this small face and this kind of thrust-out jaw uh, looking uh, very intimidating. Yeah. And what he has for Brahms is yeah, this very rotund, white-bearded Brahms falling asleep <laughs> in his... <laughs> Armchair. Like a weevil, <laughs> it's it, it's just his uh, his it's it's the lullaby. lullaby. So yeah. you know, you take what what is most caricatured of these two composers, and and I think that says a lot about the the fierceness of Beethoven, even as an old man. Oh, that's um, right. He's still defending Beethoven. Still, right? I'm oh, still yeah. in okay. defense of Beethoven, the composer and pugilist. So. <laughs> Uh, pivoting over to Beethoven, it, over the um, the weekend, I, I looked at my CDs to figure out where the Emperor Concerto falls in his composition. Um, I always think of it as a later Beethoven work, but it's it, it, as Merwin alluded to at the beginning of this episode, it's something that falls right into the middle of his, his career. So he had just written the Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, he had just written his Ghost Trio, and he had just written Fidelio. So I would put Fidelio later in his career from the sounds of it, and I would put Emperor Concerto later. But I mean, if you think about some of the the aspects of this concerto, there are points that fit very nicely with the Sixth Symphony and um, in that late 60s and early 70s in the opus numbers. Um, it's a concerto that I remember first discovering when I was a kid. My uh, my dad had this wonderful record collection, and he had Rudolf Serkin and uh, Seiji Ozawa performing at Symphony Hall in, ba in Boston, um, the Emperor Concerto. And, you know, that from the beginning note, you know that you're in for a ride because it just has this yeah. big exclamation point um, followed by these just dazzling arpeggios in the, in the piano. And you can almost imagine that the pianist has to be pretty terrified of the prospect of opening up this concerto because all you have to go on is a single chord from the orchestra and then you're in control of the tempo. The conductor might be counting rhythm in silence, but it's 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 a cadenza immediately that falls in with these great chords uh, that the orchestra comes back in on. Yeah. But if you haven't nailed the tempo in your own dazzling flourishes as a pianist, <laughs> the rest of the concerto is going to seem either very fast or very slow. So it, it, a lot rests on a pianist's shoulders at this point. And the yeah. first movement is, it's long and it's dazzling. And um, and it itself sounds like a self-contained 
piece. So you could just take that first movement and, and say it's a great concerto. But I will never tire of listening to the slow movement. The Adagio from the Emperor Concerto is one of my favorite, favorite works. Um, yeah. Slow, low chords, um, one of the most uh, melancholy strewn themes I can think of. It's happy, but it's also regretting something. And it's just so beautiful. In fact, when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, we would play her the slow movement from Beethoven's Emperor Concerto in utero through a pair of headphones. And you kind of hope that when you do this, um, you're you're going to trigger some sort of memory later in life where when she hears that slow movement of the Emperor Concerto, it'll just seem familiar to her. It's sort of like the Manchurian candidate. Well, maybe. but but a little <laughs> a little more <laughs> You just ruined a little <laughs> more kind in, in its uh yeah. <laughs> application. You didn't you didn't train her to go, you know. Yeah, Angela Lansbury was not part of this, <laughs> nor, nor, nor was Frank Sinatra for that. Although we did play her some Sinatra. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because now that I think about it, the two pieces that we would routinely play uh, for my daughter in utero were the slow movement from the Emperor Concerto and also Brahms Lullaby. So ah. it fits this Beethoven and Brahms thing as well. So she's like the new the new generation Brahms and Beethoven standing side by side. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah. you don't need the um, the, the cage match down. because yeah. they're in, intertwined. In her development. I always yeah. like when we sort of transcend where we were at the beginning of the of the podcast. When we <laughs> in this case, end. it was a pretty low bar to transcend. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, speaking of which, look at the time. That's about all the time that we have. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk with Stuart Goodyear, but we are going to hear him play. He's uh, going to be performing this weekend that Piano Concerto Number no. 5 of Beethoven, the Emperor Concerto, also Johannes Brahms, Symphony Number no. 2, wonderful concert conducted by Giordano Bellancampi. That's this Friday and Saturday, January 12 and 13 at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Toledo Museum of Art Paris Style. Tickets at 419-246-8000 or toledosymphony.com. Toledo Symphony Lab is generously underwritten by a gift from the estate of Barbara Garwood and is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of this program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org. My thanks to Zach Vassar, Merman Sue, and Felicia Canny. I'm Brad Cresswell, and you've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab here on FM 91.